welcome. If you're visiting today, thanks for being our guest and thanks for coming. We're really glad to have you. We're starting a new series of conversations today. We're going to talk about connection. And through the message today, I'm going to beat a dead horse. I'm letting you know that in advance. I'm going to be saying the same thing repeatedly from several different angles. And part of that is because this is just so critically important for us. In fact, I'm going to say a couple of times today that what we're talking about today is the main thing. And I don't mean it's the main thing for this morning. I don't even mean it's the main thing for our spiritual lives. I mean it's the main thing for us, for our lives. So let's kick this off this morning with a word of prayer. So if you would, pray with me. Father, thanks so much for the incredible privilege of gathering in this space to honor you, and we pray that we would honor you with our hearts this morning. So we bring all that we know of ourselves to all that we know of you, and with sincere and glad hearts, we lean into you, and we give you, as best we can, we give you permission this morning to penetrate past defenses and to speak to us to wake our hearts up, to wake our minds up, and to draw us near you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So this is Darby and Allie, and they are here this morning to uh, read scripture for us, but for the introduction to this series, all you guys have to do is just sit there and look cute. Okay, Robert Waldinger is a Harvard University professor and is the director of a long-term study on happiness. This study is remarkable. It's unique in its scope. First of all, Waldinger is the fourth director of this study because the study has been going on for 75 years. Dr. Waldinger says he likes to imagine what the first research group that began this study would be thinking if they knew it was still going on. In 1938, Harvard College engaged 724 young men. Half of them were Harvard sophomores, and the other half were young men from Boston's most disadvantaged neighborhoods. The, the second group lived mostly in tenement buildings with no running water. Both groups of men were teenagers when the study began. They worked and or finished college. Most of them went off to World War II. Then they came back, most married. They had families. They became bricklayers and plumbers and doctors and alcoholics and fathers. There was even one U.S. president in the group. And as I said, this study is remarkable, primarily because long-term studies like this always fall apart over time, but somehow this one held together. Currently, there are 60 original participants who are still alive, and still active in the study. They're all, of course, over the age of 90. Plus, there are 2,000 children of these original participants who are now participating in the study themselves. Every two years, for 75 years, researchers have interviewed the participants and their families. How are they? What's happened of note in their lives? How are they feeling about themselves, about their work, about their future? They get their medical records. They draw bloods. They do scans of their brains, and they gather reams of data. I thought this was interesting. 
Waldinger says, the inner city Boston men have often asked the researchers over the years, why do you keep wanting to study me? My life just isn't that interesting. The Harvard men never ask that question. Then Dr. Waldinger gave a, a TED talk in 2015 which summarized the findings of this study. I want to quote him here so that you get the full effect. Now, I want you to notice how much time I've spent setting up this quote, so it better be worth it. And it is. Waldinger said this. So what did we learn, Dr. Waldinger asked. What are the lessons that have come from the tens of thousands of pages of information that we have generated on these lives? Well, the lessons aren't about wealth or fame or working harder and harder. The clearest message that we get from this 75-year study is this, colon, good relationships keep us happier and healthier, period. The period for emphasis is not mine. It's Dr. Waldinger's. Good relationships is the main thing. The main thing about our lives. Not the main thing about this morning, not the main thing about your religion. It's the main thing about our lives. Being rightly connected is the most vital topic for us. So, again, thank you if you're a guest this morning. We sort of feel like this is a new chapter for us at Gateway because we're in new space. So, if this is your first time here, it's a brand new space to, to you. It kind of is to us as well. We barely know where the light switches are at this point. We're sort of starting from square one a little bit, and we get to talk about the basics, you know, Christianity 101. That's why we're doing this series of conversations. But this is not Christianity 101. I mean, it is. But this isn't just Christianity 101. This is Life 101. Good relationships are the key to our fulfillment, our, our happiness, our success, and our sense of success. We're going to spend the next few weeks off and on talking about this, about connecting. We'll begin today by talking about why this is so important. And as I said, we're going to beat a dead horse and why good relationships keep us healthier and happier, period. And then we're going to talk about how we're benefited by right connections. And we'll ask exactly what does this do for us. Then we're going to end today by talking about what good relationships look like. We'll just say a word. I mean, in fact, when we get there, literally a word about what good relationships look like. And that's going to set us up for what we're going to talk about for the next several weeks. When we're rightly connected, what does that look like? So we'll talk about that more specifically. We'll, we'll talk about the kind of people we need to be in order to be rightly connected. All right, so Darby is going to read from Genesis 1 and 2. So first she'll read from Genesis 1, and then she's going to read from Genesis 2, and then we're going to skip to the New Testament. And Allie is going to read a couple of Jesus interactions. She's going to read from Matthew 22 and John 13. Darby, read Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Okay, now she's going to skip over to Genesis chapter 2, which is more detailed and a different angle on God's creative activity. So Genesis 2 15 through 18, and you'll pick up the theme here. I want you to notice what God says in this. 
The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Okay, so pause and before you, Allie, for a second. Notice this uh, last little paragraph that's God teeing off a little bit on what he's created. And what we have in the Genesis 1 account is we have God summoning up all of his creative energy, and he creates essentially everything that we know as reality. And what's pictured for us in Genesis 1 is God pausing at the end of each creative enterprise, and he looks at what he's created, and God says, oh, that's good. And then day two, there's another exercise in creative activity, and God stands back and surveys, and he says, that's good. Day three, day four, that's good. Day five, that's good. Day six, he creates human beings, and he says, that's very good in all of creation. So mountains and rivers and stars and galaxies and black holes colliding together and other astronomical things that I don't know the names of, all of that. God has looked at all of that and the expanse and said, that's good. Way to go, self. There's only one thing in all of this that's not good. Man's aloneness. Now, we'll tie these threads together, but now let's skip over to Jesus and listen to a couple of Jesus interactions. And Allie is going to read for us Matthew 22, 34 through 40. So, uh, Allie, Matthew 22, 34 through 40. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on to these two commandments. Let's go old school, and out of reverence for God's word, let's stand for this last reading. This is John 13, 34 and 35. This is Jesus in an intimate setting talking to his followers, and I want you to hear what he says. It's of critical importance. Allie? A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And all God's people said, kind of. They didn't know what to say, so they settled on amen. You may be seated. Thank you, girls. Okay, why is connection so vital? Why is this the main thing? Why is this of such critical importance to us? Why so central to who we are? Why so fundamental? Why key to our happiness? Why key to our sense of success? Well, it turns out we were designed for community. The pattern for our lives, the blueprint from which we were made is a community. God exists in community. The pattern for our lives, the blueprint, from which we were made, is a community. God exists in community. Now let's make note of a couple of things about what I just said. First of all, we were designed. It's increasingly important for us to hold on to this truth. It's under assault today, both intellectually and practically. Practically, this idea that we were designed is under assault because we're just so busy it makes our lives seem random. But they're not. We were designed we have purpose and meaning. More than that, we were designed, pause for dramatic effect, to be like God. Let us make mankind in our image. 
God said in the passage that Darby read for us. And the image of God is a community. This is what the Trinity means. God is a relationship. God is a relationship. Let's pause over what a radical idea this is. is. This is why the Muslims think we're heretics. In an excellent illustration of the Trinity, C.S. Lewis asks us to imagine drawing a straight line on a piece of paper. This is a one-dimensional figure. Then, he says, imagine drawing a square. This would be a two-dimensional figure exhibiting width and depth. Lewis reminds us that while the second figure is completely different from the first, it nevertheless uses elements of the first figure to create the second figure. That is, several straight lines are used to make the square. Then Lewis suggests that we imagine drawing a three-dimensional cube. The cube is actually the combination of six squares drawn together. He summarizes it like this. Listen to Lewis. In other words, as you advance to more real and more complicated levels, you do not leave behind you the things you found on the simpler levels. You still have them, but combined in new ways, in ways you could not imagine if you knew only the simpler levels. Now, the Christian account of God involves just the same principle. The human level is a simple and rather empty level. On the human level, one person is one being, and any two persons are two separate beings, just as in two dimensions, say on a flat piece of paper, one square is one figure, and any two squares are two separate figures. On the divine level, you still find personalities, but up there you find them combined in new ways which we, who do not live on that level, cannot imagine. In God's dimension, so to speak, you find a being who is three persons while remaining one being, just as a cube is six squares while remaining one cube. All right, you didn't come this morning to work all of that out, and I'm not trying to give a full explanation or defense of the Trinity. I couldn't. But I'm trying to hint at, I'm trying to do more than hint, I'm trying to flat out say, that's the pattern for who we are. And if relationship, if community is at the core, it is what the blueprint for our lives is, then guess what we're going to need? We see this dynamic, this multiple personality and the divinity dynamic hinted at throughout the Bible. In fact, in the Old Testament, in a rebuke from Deuteronomy 32.6, Moses says this, Is this the way you repay the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father, your creator, who made you and formed you? Now, I know Moses isn't fully informed here. He doesn't have a clear concept of God as a community of persons, but it's still interesting that it teases this fatherly world creator aspect out of the idea of God. Then in Job 33.4, we read this, The Spirit of God has made me. The breath of the Almighty gives me life. Again, obviously, teasing out the Spirit as an aspect of God. Finally, in an awesome, faith-inspiring story from the book of Daniel, we read about these three characters, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were thrown in a fire for their faith. When they didn't burn up, King Nebuchadnezzar, the evil guy in the story, who had intended to have them burned up, said this, Weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? And those around respond, certainly, O king. Then Nebuchadnezzar said this, Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Consistent hints like this come out of the testimonies of Old Testament saints throughout. 
But what is hinted at in the Old Testament is brought into full relief in the New Testament. There, of course, we meet the person of Jesus. And he walks, and he talks, and he laughs just like us. He even prays to the Father just like us. But he also does things that only God should do, only God can do. He says things that suggest either something incredibly divine is happening here, or he's a crazy person. And his followers end up speaking of him the way only God should be spoken of. And then Jesus talks about a third person, the Holy Spirit. And that third person becomes part of our experience. Three persons, one being God. A community of divinity. God is a relationship. God is a community. So if that's the pattern for us, then right relationships would be essential. Right relationships would be fundamental to who we are and how we operate. So there's no mystery why Dr. Waldinger concluded what he concluded. The Harvard Research Project spent an incredible amount of resources over 75 years in order to discover what we've known since the beginning that good relationships are essential to our well-being. This is how we were designed. So what happens in us when we are rightly connected? How does this benefit us? Being rightly connected, how are we benefited? Important for us to note this, but I'm admitting in advance, again, all I'm doing is beating a dead horse to make sure that we remember this, that we're able to constantly on Monday, Tuesday, Friday, and a month from now, call this to mind. So how are we benefited? Well, number one, we've already said, being rightly connected improves our physical health overall. Being rightly connected improves our physical health. And that makes sense, doesn't it? If our design calls for us to be rightly connected, then it would follow that being rightly connected would help us physically, and it does. Dr. Waldinger draws out three specific lessons from his study concerning connection and human health. The first one is this. Loneliness kills us. We cited this statistic a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about resilience, but people who experience chronic loneliness are 14% more likely to die an early death. There's a recent study that suggests it might be as high as 24% more likely to die an early death. And the researchers say, you know, chronic loneliness doesn't kill you, but what it does is exacerbate all of the conditions that do kill you. It ameliorates even your immune system. Loneliness is not good for us physically. An aside, of course, it's also not good for us emotionally and socially. That's why when FBI agents are looking for mass killers or they're looking for, come on, what was his name? The Unabomber. They're looking for someone like that and they don't know who it is. They begin by looking for people who are radical loners because isolation is a killer. It turns out it's a physical killer as well. His second observation is just a summary of everything else he said, but it's worth noting. He explained that the researchers, listen to this, they spent a great deal of time trying to identify the most important factors in health and happiness in the octogenarians in the study. 
So once people in the study began to be 80 years old, they started studying them looking for the, the factors that contributed to their sense of well-being. So those study participants who lived to be 80, they poured over the data from their lives from their 50s and 40s to look for the patterns, especially for those who claimed to be happy into their 80s. They went looking for commonalities. And once again, one factor stood out. Let me quote the good doctor again. The people who were most satisfied in their relationships at 50 were the healthiest at age 80. What? You ought to be stunned. Except you kind of know this. We just forget it, right? A third observation about the health benefits of connection from the long-term study was these benefits extend not just to our bodies but to our minds as well. People who are well-connected into their 80s stay sharper mentally. That is, the octogenarians who were well-connected perform better on memory tests. Statistically very significant as opposed to those who felt disconnected. Being rightly connected improves our physical health. Our physical health, that's how we're benefited. Secondly, a second benefit to being rightly connected to others is that it improves our relationship to God. Being rightly connected to others improves our relationship to God. Honestly, those of you who are out there looking for some kind of spiritual something to connect to and you visited Gateway, thank you. Seriously, congratulations. Honestly, this may not be the place that you should connect, but find a place that is. Because your connection to God will be enhanced, improved, by, simply by your connection with others. Or let's put it another way. You cannot be re rightly related to God without being rightly related to others. And I would also suggest that the reverse is true. You can't rightly re be related to God without rightly being related to others. Did I say the same thing twice? You know what I mean. In the Matthew passage that Allie read for us this morning, Jesus has asked one of those big-ticket, often-debated theological questions, and seriously, during Jesus' time, this was a debate that Pharisees and teachers of law would frequently engage in. You know, what is the greatest commandment? So Jesus has asked, what is the greatest commandment? And here's the thing that's weird about that. If you grew up in church, you've heard that before, and you've gotten used to this. But pause for a minute. He answers that question. This is usually the kind of question that he would dismiss or he would turn it on the questioner and ask them a question in return to just blow their minds. But, but Jesus dives in and gives an answer to that question. By the way, he doesn't pick out one of the Ten Commandments, one of the big ten. What he does is he dives into a quote from the book of Deuteronomy and then he goes deep into the book of Leviticus and pulls out another quote and he says basically this, Okay, you want to know what the greatest command is? The greatest command is love God. And the second one, just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love others. Love God, love others. And then he blows our minds, or he should blow our mind. If we've gotten too used to this, allow your mind to be blown this morning. Then he says, all of the law and the prophets, everything God has said up to this point, all of the stories, all of the testimonies, all of the studying that you and I have done over those texts, it's all summarized in that. Love God and love others. This is the summary of everything. If you want to be right with God, do this. Love him and love others.
Loving others improves our connection to God. Put a period on this. I like how Andrew Murray put this. He said, my relationship with God is part of my relationship with men. Failure in one will cause failure with the other. A second benefit of being rightly connected to others is that it improves my relationship with God. And a third benefit, being rightly connected, plunges us into God's mission. It gets us deep into what God wants us to be and do for the world. Connection gives our life purpose. Right? This is a part of what Jesus is saying in Matthew 34 and 35, that last passage that Allie read for us. I'm going to say something new to you guys, Jesus says. Love one another. Not really new, Jesus, but the emphasis that he gave it was new. And then he says this, by that action, they'll know that you're my followers if you love one another. This is crazy because no self-respecting rabbi would say that kind of thing. The way that they know that they're a follower of any ancient Near Eastern self-respecting rabbi, well, they know the teaching of that rabbi. They can quote him. They know his various interpretations of the law. Jesus says, here's how they're going to know that you're my followers. If you love one another. How will people know that we follow Jesus? By our connection to one another. How do we tell the world about God's love? How do we join God in inviting people into God's activity? We love one another. By the way, this is what the church is. The church is a connection network. So I said this a few weeks ago. I told you I was going to say it again. I'm going to say it a couple of times during this series. This is not a church. This is a crowd. It becomes a church to the degree that we connect to one another, that we build relationships with one another, that we get involved with one another's lives. This is awesome. We're singing Pretty good stuff. Y'all sound okay. Acoustics in the room still aren't good. We're working on it, but it'll be after the first of the year. Hang in there. Band is great. They're old, as Jordan said, but they're great. We're singing. Jordan's praying. He leads us in the Apostle's Creed for crying out loud. That's just a crowd. That's a crowd doing religious stuff. Church is a relationship network. It's a connection network. It's people involved in one another's lives. That's what we were made for. It is essential. It's fundamental to who we are. All right, enough of beating that horse, Ed. Let's try to wrap this up. Before we quit today, let's make sure we really understand the point that's been implicit in everything we've said. So what does being rightly connected look like? Again, this is going to be the launch point for the next several weeks when we talk about this. What does being rightly connected look like? We can summarize it in one word. It looks like love. This is the main thing. So, if you're in a bad marriage, you know the importance of this. You know that that connection or lack of connection affects everything. It's not just like the few minutes that you spend arguing with your spouse, that's really bad, but, you know, everything else in my life is awesome. It never works that way. If you're in a bad marriage, the entirety of your life has a film over it because of that lack of connectivity Because there's something wrong at the heart of your connection to someone who's critical in your life. 
If you have an unfulfilling marriage, then there is a ceiling on your happiness. I don't care how many promotions you get, and I barely need to remind you, you know this. The key for you is to figure out how to love your spouse well. You know, the reason most of us get into trouble in these relationships, and we all do, but the reason we get into trouble is because when you come to somebody like me to talk about your struggles in your marriage, what you want to talk about is your struggles in your marriage. You're thinking, how in the world did I end up marrying somebody like this? And why is he so X? Or why is she so Y? Maybe one of you is the exception, but I can't recall a single time that someone has come in to my office and sat down and said, help me figure out how to love my spouse better. Help me figure out how to do this well. That's the key thing. Love. If you're 38 and you have young kids, you need to remember the main thing. Here's the main thing. Your kids need to know they're loved. Secondly, they need to learn how to love others. That's the main thing. It's not providing them with the right opportunities. That's important. But that's not the main thing. It's not academic excellence. It's not seven after-school clubs so that they can improve their math and science skills. That's not the main thing. The main thing is that they know they're loved by you and they're learning how to love well themselves because of the way you and your spouse love one another, because of the way you treat your next-door neighbor, because of the way you treat your parents. Remember that, Jordan. When you're 29 or 39 and you're thinking about success in life, it's not how many toys you've collected. It's not how many experiences you've collected, despite what you millennials think. Your success and your sense of success, and you're never going to get it perfectly. Nobody gets to be the person who walks through all day, every day, and just, I'm doing stinking great, and I feel fantastic about myself and what a super day this is. None of us get to be that person. But if you're thinking about your success, you need to remember that your success is directly proportional to the degree of right connection that you have in your life. That's the key. Dr. Waldinger made this observation at the end of his TED Talk that what he's really talking about is, he doesn't use this language, my language, but what he's really talking about is not proximity. Because we can be in a crowd and still be lonely. We can be in a marriage and still be lonely. He's not talking about proximity. He's talking about connection. He's talking about making investment. He's talking about people really being involved in one another's lives and connecting to one another. Are we loving well? Are we getting better at our ability to give and receive love? That's the main thing. That's the key to our health. That's the key to our happiness. Right connection. All right. We're going to spend some weeks examining how to love well and how to be rightly related, and we're going to get very practical about that. How do we love well? All right, let me wrap up. Is the horse dead yet? I think so. I think we got that that's the main thing. So let's pray together. Father, help us to make the investment. 
to connect. It's what we were designed for. So draw us near and draw us close. I pray, Lord, that you would help us grow in our ability to love well. Our spouse, our children, if we're married, if we have children, our neighbors, and the people in this room. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're going to close with a little song, but before we do, I want you, if you would, stand with me. And let's just create a moment of absolute awkwardness. You can do this with someone you know well, but it would be even better if you did this with someone that you don't know well. I want you to turn to someone near you, and I want you to say, how are you? Because connecting with one another is the main thing. And then I want that person to say, I'm doing well. And then they'll say to you, how are you? Because connecting with one another is the main thing. And then I want one of you to say, after you've both said, I'm doing well, I want one of you to say, no, really, how are you? You don't have time to answer, but I want you to act like you mean it anyway. So turn to one another and remind one another that this is the main thing, especially if you don't know them. And yes, I mean, I'm serious. Right now, turn to someone. Let's go to that third verse of unashamed love. You're calling me to serve you, Lord. Worthy. Worthy.